Well, good morning, Crossroads family. Thanks for worshiping with us today here in Newburgh. And if you're online, thanks for leaning in and just joining us in worship as well. If you were here last weekend, you know, last weekend we had a baptism celebration and over nine people were baptized last weekend. And we just want to start this weekend by just celebrating that. Would you do that with me? You know, one of the things that stood out to me uh, is a majority of the people who were baptized last week had never been to Crossroads before until the COVID season. That just blows me away. I mean, they had never stepped a foot inside of our campus uh, until uh, this COVID season was going on. And God is still at work in the midst of us wearing masks and social distancing and all that other stuff. Uh, there was three people baptized on the West Campus. And what I love about that is uh, one of the young ladies, she's a young mom. Her husband has been deployed for about 18 months. He just returned back about two months ago. And uh, her, her husband, and one of their children were baptized. Just really cool stories of what God is doing in the life of people. And I just want to let you know that baptism celebration was last weekend, but there's never a bad time to be baptized, okay? The water is warm. We're always ready to help you take that next step in your relationship with Jesus. And so if you want to be baptized today, just let us know. We'd be happy to help you out. In fact, any day, it would be a great day for you to be baptized. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I asked you to think about what's your favorite moment that we've seen so far in the life and ministry of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. And I hinted then that one of my favorite moments was coming up. It was foreshadowed when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with this expensive perfume and she wiped his feet with, his hair, with her hair. And in that moment, I told you that was a foreshadowing of my favorite moment. In fact, if I was to wrap up the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, or if I was to show you one picture of what it really means to live and love like Jesus, it would be the moment we're going to see today found in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. And you can turn there with me, but what we're going to be looking at is that moment where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Jesus came to earth to reflect the character of God. And as we see Jesus living and loving in the Gospel of John, one of the character traits that jump out to us is certainly humility. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He left heaven, came to earth as an act of humility. Jesus washes his disciples' feet as an act of humility. And Jesus goes to the cross of Calvary in an act of humility. He died on that cross for you and me, an act of humility. Jesus came not to serve, be served, but to serve. And he lived a humble life of service. He showed you and me just how to do this. He served in humility. The problem is, is that we're just not really good at that naturally. You heard about the man who was awarded most humble servant at his workplace. He received the plaque. He put it on his wall. He showed all of his friends who came to his office and then he had to give it back, right? Let that sink in for a moment. Maybe today at lunch, it'll jump in there. You know, C.S. Lewis is most often quoted by saying this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Today, we're going to see that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And Jesus patterns for us humility. He shows us how to serve others. And he also asks us to join his mission with him. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, shows us Jesus humbly washing the feet of his disciples. Let's read along as we see how John records this. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It was Passover week in Jerusalem. It was the night before Jesus was going to be crucified. It was Thursday evening meal, which was actually the start of Friday. And we knew that Jesus is crucified on Friday. Jesus knew that he had come to the Father for very one purpose. And that purpose was at hand. In fact, this hour had come or his time had come has been a theme we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John. That time recognizes it's time for him to save the world, to die, to be resurrected, and to ascend. Jesus knew in this very moment he was going to die the very next day. What would you do today if you knew that tomorrow was your last day here on earth? Well, what Jesus chooses to do is have a meal with some of his closest friends, even the person who is soon to betray him within probably the next hour or two. He also not just ate with his friends, he decided to wash the disciples' feet, even the one who would soon betray him. The foot washing event is only recorded by John in his gospel. The other gospel writers describe this last supper that we probably know about. And they also record the institution of the Lord's Supper that happened as Jesus celebrated the Passover with his closest friends. But John doesn't mention the last supper. He doesn't mention the Lord's Supper. What he does mention is this moment of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. With this event, Jesus foreshadowed his coming crucifixion. He humbly washes the feet of his disciples and then he humbly lays down his life for them. John says in chapter 13 verse 2 these words, Jesus loved them to the end. Some translations have said that he showed them the full extent of his love. I love that phrase. In fact, it'll be just a couple chapters later in John 15, 13, where Jesus says, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for one's friends. Jesus demonstrates love to those that he calls his own. And he loves them to the end, both fully and also up until the very moment of the end of his life. The word here for loved comes from a Greek root word, agape. And that word means an express a personal will and affection rather than just some emotion or feeling. This type of love is a must-do love. It's a non-negotiable type of love. And this humble love is lived out in actions. Jesus sets a great example for us to follow. And what's crazy to me is that Judas, who is soon to betray Jesus, Jesus already knows Judas is going to betray him, Judas is sitting right there, and Jesus chooses to wash his feet. Scripture says that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Satan had captured the heart of Judas, and Jesus knows it. I think it's a conspiracy of evil. And Jesus had already said in John 6, verse 70, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Judas was chosen by Jesus, but all along Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus had all things under his control, as John says in the opening verses here. And so this doesn't surprise Jesus of what Judas is up to. So we have to ask the question, did Jesus choose Judas only for the point of being betrayed? Probably not. 
But scripture does have to be fulfilled. And in this moment, we see that happening. You'll want to come back next week because next week, the rest of the chapter of 13 is actually focused on this moment with Judas and what's going on in his mind. And we'll also be able to look at how we might uh, uh, appear a lot like him in moments in our life. Just because Satan influences Judas, we can't give Judas a pass. He is a willing participant. He's a responsible decision maker in this moment. Judas is the one who was chosen by Jesus, but he's the one who chooses to betray Jesus. As we learned last week, every person has a choice to believe or not. And while Jesus is a gentleman and won't barge down the door, I think he will do anything and everything that would serve us to reveal his love to us. And in this moment, Jesus washes his Judas feet, knowing full well that how he would respond and how he would proceed on with that betrayal. Let's look at this specific moment of Jesus in this humble act of service. It was customary for people to bathe at their own home before attending a meal or a banquet like this. But they would have expected somebody to meet them at the door to wash their feet. The roads of Palestine were dirty and dusty. You got a combination of dirt and manure all dried and mixed together. It covers over everybody's feet. It's kind of like going to the state fair and having to watch where you step, if you know what I mean. Well, in this moment, no servant is present at the door. And John says that the meal has already started. The disciples were reclining at this table and As we saw in that moment where Mary anointed Jesus, the table was low to the ground. They were probably leaning on their left elbow with their head near the table, eating with their right hand, and their feet would have been extended behind them. That's this moment that we see them reclining at the table. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He does not let his authority or or to just be something he holds on to, like Philippians 2 says. But once again, he offers himself In an incredibly awkward moment, he starts scrubbing the feet of the disciples. In the first century, that task for washing feet was a menial task. It was the lowest of lowest. In fact, Old Testament law forbid a Jew to wash another Jew's feet. It was the work of a Gentile. And if you know anything about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, they weren't even really viewed as being human. And so it was a job for them. No peer would have ever washed their peers' feet. And somebody in authority, well, this work was well above them. D.A. Carson says this, here Jesus reverses normal roles. His act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning. And it is simultaneously a display of love, a symbol of saving and cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. In the Greco-Roman world that was full of pride, Jesus is humble. So the question is, how could we apply this action of humility in our prideful culture today? Well, I think it starts first with our heart. If we want to live a humble life of service like Jesus, then we must possess an attitude of humility. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, that humility is thinking of yourself less. I think our attitude should be like of Christ Jesus, again, recorded by Paul in Philippians 2. So at the office or at the workplace, don't take credit for all that your team has accomplished. Give the credit to others. Take a humble position. Maybe at home, put the interests of your spouse ahead of your own. Or just simply do the things that no one else wants to do. Around my house, it's replacing the toilet paper when it comes to that beautiful, magical paper roll that's on the center of it. Seems like we have a lot of those just spinning in our house. It's it's a job nobody wants to do. How about you do that job? Maybe at church, 
place your focus on serving the Lord, not for recognition or any type of position. In fact, if you're interested, like what are some ways that I can maybe live this heart out? I'd encourage you to go to our website. You can go to cccgo.com forward slash serve and it will help you learn how to kind of create a heart like Jesus as you serve, whether it be here at Crossroads or maybe with one of our local or global partners. First Peter chapter five, verse five, Peter says this, clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. I find that really ironic that Peter is the one who makes that declaration because in this moment, we're getting ready to see that Peter had a lot of growing up to do in his faith from the moment we're about to read in John 13 to the point where he can make such a bold, honest and Christ filled statement. Let's pick up now in John 13 in verse six. It says, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Most commentators think he's saying, what in the world is going on here? It was that shocking that Jesus was washing their feet and he was not really interested in washing his. Jesus replied, you, have no, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Again, 1 Peter 5, 5. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. Though not every one of you. For he knew what was, who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. John records this specific moment of Jesus washing Peter's feet. Initially, Peter refuses. And I think that's part, in part because of his ignorance of the significance of this moment. I think it's also in part of some humility. Peter knows that he should really be washing Jesus' feet. But I think the bigger play at hand is of Peter's pride. Peter represents those self-righteous people who are confident and wanting things to go their own way. He might also represent that person who feels like they can never be helped by anybody else. Rodney Whitaker says this, in Peter's response, we see pride and self-will that is at the heart of sin. And this is the very thing for which the cross will atone and bring healing. Peter is working from a worldly point of view. Jesus makes a very powerful theological statement in this moment that has much more to, to speak about our spiritual cleansing than our physical cleansing. And he says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Once Peter sees that the only way to have eternal relationship with Jesus is to be washed by him, he's like, then I'm all in. Wash me from head to toe, Jesus. And Jesus replies, you don't really need that, Peter. It's only your feet that are dirty. According to Jesus, Peter had already been bathed. And this bathe implies a complete action had been done. And this bathing is actually in the root word much more about moral cleansing, spiritual cleansing. Peter did not understand that it was spiritual cleansing that Jesus was referring to. But this original word for clean implies this moral purity that Jesus was bringing, not just to Peter, but to all. Peter had been bathed by believing in who Jesus is. We heard his declaration. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. But obviously, Peter still struggled with sin. And Jesus offers him hope. Commentator Charles Ryrie says this, a man who's been cleansed from sin need not think uh, all is lost when he sins. When Jesus says, 
you have no part with me. He is saying that you will not be part of my family unless you allow me to wash you clean. This is not a rejection. It's actually an invitation. And if Peter can't let Jesus wash him, then he would not be saved. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says these words. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. Just like Peter, we all have a choice. It's a choice to choose that continual cleansing from Jesus that he offers us. When we choose to believe in who Jesus is, we are new. His blood purifies us from all the sins we've ever committed and all the sins we will commit. We don't need to be rebaptized every time we might sin. So I want to challenge you if you're here today and maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you feel that this filth on you. I want to extend Jesus' invitation for you to be washed by him. And it simply comes by believing in who he is and saying, Jesus, I believe that you are Messiah. I believe that you're Savior, and I want you to be my Savior and Lord. And if you're ready to take that step, we would love to help you. All you simply have to do is text the word now to 812-858-8668. It allows us to know that you're ready to take a relationship with Jesus seriously. And we'd love to walk alongside with you and help you understand just how to do that. After this moment, Jesus states that not every one of them was clean. Judas had clean feet, but his heart was filled with sin. He rejected Jesus as Messiah and sin found a foothold in his life and it brought filth into his life. Sin separates you and me from God. Jesus came to wash us clean, to reconcile us with God. We can keep ourselves clean by simply confessing our sins daily. If you've been bathed, Jesus says, all you need to do is wash your feet. Keep scrubbing those toes. So don't allow Satan to gain control over your life as he did in Judas. But instead, seek purity in your life. That's the second step that you and I can take to live this life of humble service. Now, Jesus starts teaching again. And look what he says in verse 12 of chapter 13. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I think this is the climax of the entire passage. It's what John wants his readers to take away. Jesus says, follow my example. Don't just listen to my teachings and nod your head and say, isn't that great and not do it. Jesus says, just do it. This call could not be any clearer for you and me as Christ's followers. Jesus isn't instituting an ordinance of foot washing, much like the Lord's Supper or, or baptism are more ordinances. But in this moment, he's teaching us how to live and love like him. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus says that they call him teacher and Lord. He's their master. He's their boss. He's their example. And Jesus says, rightly so. That's who I am. He then reverses the order. He says, because I am your Lord and teacher, do what I've just done for you. His status does not preclude him from service. Jesus is a different kind of teacher. He's a different kind of leader. He's a servant leader. He knows his disciples are prideful and he knows that's not just true about Peter. 
In Luke's account of the Last Supper, just be after Jesus has predicted that one of the disciples would betray him, there's an argument that breaks out among the disciples about who should be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that ironic? And it's in that moment that Jesus responds to this conversation, this debate among his followers by saying this. It's in Luke 22, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest or the least, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's the exact same response that Jesus gives to the mother of James and John who makes a request for one of her boys to sit at the left hand and one of the boys to sit at the right hand. I think it's funny that John doesn't record that happening. It's like he forgot that moment where his mommy kind of asked Jesus for a favor. But in that moment, Jesus responds the same way. No master or no servant is greater than their master, but I am among you as one who serves, Jesus says. He says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And then he adds this phrase, just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus requires us to follow his example. And John Piper calls it, when we follow the example of Jesus, he calls that going low. He said this, Christians of high standing should give themselves gladly to lowly serving. In all his ministry, Jesus has been showing peculiar, revealing, saving, forgiving, patient, confirming, guiding love to his own. In verse 17 of John 13, Jesus links knowing and doing. He says, knowing is useless unless it's followed with doing. This is not an easy task according to Jesus. In your humility, you may be humiliated. And Jesus challenges us with his words and his actions to live life like him in serving. He provides a greatest example of, uh, for us when he actually dies for us on the cross. He promises blessing or happiness, happy life to those who come and do, who act upon their knowledge. Maybe you've noticed that some of the happiest people that you may encounter in life are often the ones who are serving faithfully. And the opposite is true. When you're worried about your own needs, when you're focused on yourself, oblivious to the needs of others, you seem to just kind of be down on life. You seem to be just kind of a, a negative person, not a lot of fun to be around. Gerald Borchardt said this, in the life of Jesus, there is no division between head understanding and life practice. So if you and I wanna live a life of humble service like Jesus, we need to possess an attitude of humility. We need to seek purity in our life and we need to serve the needs of others. Tim Keller says that when we do, we are best living out the fruit of the spirit, the evidence that we are truly alive in Christ. He challenges us to do so by keeping our eyes focused on the feet of others. John tells us that Jesus showed the full extent of his love by serving his disciples by washing their feet. And so I wonder, can your serving be reflective of what Paul describes 
love looking like when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13? You know, that's more than just a passage to read at weddings. It actually has nothing to do with weddings. It describes full love, but it's a love that we should share with every person, not just our spouse. So let me ask you, are you patient letting others go ahead of you in the line at the supermarket or just being friendly to that cashier who seems to be taking forever? Are you kind to those to whom you disagree with whom you disagree? Are you envious of those who have more than you? Or do you look down upon those who might have less? Are you more concerned about your own needs or the needs of others? Are you easily angered by your children or your spouse? Do you remind them often of how they have wronged you? Are you happy for those people when good things happen to them? Or do you, are you quick to spread gossip about others? Are you willing to put yourself out or in harm's way to protect another person? Are you trusting and hopeful? Are you perseverant as you serve? Are you focused on serving God, not man? And are you mindful that whatever you do for the Lord is not in vain? Love is expressed in humility, in acts of service toward those around us. Let's look at two more verses. John 13, verse 18 and 20 records this. Jesus says, when he had finished, or John says, when they had finished, oh, sorry, it is Jesus who said it. Verse 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who accept, or whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Once again, we see in this moment that Jesus is referring to his betrayer. But Jesus wants to be clear to his disciples that he is sovereign. He is known from the very beginning that Judas would betray him. This betrayal does not diminish who he is. He is Messiah. He says, I am who I am. And Jesus ref or John refers to this confident identity that Jesus has. He said it back in verses 1 and 3. And I just kind of jumped off the page to me this past week that Jesus' identity, the confidence that he had in who God had made him, allowed him to serve humbly. See, when you and I are insecure about our identity, we're kind of always just focused on ourselves. We're th thinking more of ourselves. But when we are clear who our identity, where our identity is from, who we are in Christ, we are free and confident to serve others. In verse uh, 18, Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, that reads, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. In this psalm, King David is actually referring to a betrayal by a close friend, an advisor of him, a table companion, and his name was Ahithophel. You can read about his betrayal in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. Sharing bread or eating together was a sign of a bond, a close fellowship acceptance in the Jewish culture. And so betrayal by somebody who you had that kind of close fellowship with, man, that was traumatic for David and for anybody involved. The phrase turned against me, the NIV literally translates, has lifted his heel against me. Displaying the bottom of a person's foot, especially at a meal, was a sign of a breach of honor. Scripture is fulfilled in this moment. Judas breaks the trust of Jesus in this betrayal. Ahithophel, after he betrayed David, went out and hung himself. 
You see the parallel there? Because Judas, after he recognizes what he's done by betraying Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders who arrested him, went and hung himself too. Despite Judas's betrayal, Jesus speaks of the commissioning of his disciples in verse 20. He's preparing his disciples for his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we see them freak out a little bit between that moment when Jesus dies and comes back to life. But after spending 40 days with Jesus, he takes them to the top of that hill and he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And they made good on that command. In fact, you and I are here today as believers because they said yes to his mission. And so I want to remind you that you and I, all of us, are to be on mission with Jesus. Don't fail like Judas, because he missed out. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the rest of the disciples lived their life to their very dying moment in the same way that Jesus had. The same way he lived, and the same way he loved, and in the same way he served. And that's why Jesus has said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. So you and I need to go on a light-bearing mission for Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our schools, at work by serving others. Several commentators use this passage and describe what Jesus is inviting his followers into is what they've called the fellowship of the Tao. I love Taylor University that's located in Northern uh, Indiana, Upland, Indiana. And one of their uh, practices is to pass out a white towel to every incoming freshman. And that white towel they give to them and they challenge them to spend the next four years of their college experience serving the community, whether on the college or around them. And then at graduation, in fact, just yesterday, Taylor got to celebrate this year's class of 2020 in commencement and they handed every graduate a white towel and challenged them to go into the world and to serve like Jesus. That's the fellowship of the towel. It's a little more personal to me because uh, in May of 1996, I was ordained into ministry. And at my ordination, my dad gave me a charge from scripture. It was from John 13. And then he walked down from the stage and he took my shoes and socks off and he washed my feet as Jesus did the disciples there. And he handed me this towel. It's embroidered May 12, 1996, Milford, Kentucky, where I was ordained. And he just challenged me to go and live a life of service as I was headed out into ministry. Well, about 10 years ago, my dad celebrated his 50th year in ministry. And I got an incredible opportunity to come full circle. I presented my dad a gold towel on that 50th anniversary and thanked him for setting an example of how Jesus serves and how he's been faithful to that. And then I took my dad's shoes and socks off and I washed his feet. I want you to know that Jesus has invited us into the fellowship of the Tao. In fact, more than invited in us, he says, what I've done for you, now go and do for others. It's not optional if we want to live and love like Jesus, to live a life of serving others. Those who are sitting next to us right now, those who live across the street from us, those who are our teacher or fellow students, those at our workplace, is to go and serve the world so that they could see the life of Jesus, so that they could see the love of Jesus by us serving like Jesus. So if you wanna live a life of humble service, you need to possess an attitude of humility. You need to seek purity in your life. You need to meet and serve the needs of others. And you need to join Jesus on his mission. 
Would you pray with me? God, thank you for not just talking about how we're supposed to live, but you wrapped yourself in human flesh. You came to our very world and you showed us how to live. You showed us how to love. And you did that in numerous ways of serving the needs of those around you. You did that by serving our greatest need. And that was the need of a savior. And so it's with that motivation, God, that you encourage us, you challenge us, you command us to live and to love and to serve like Jesus in a world that so desperately needs to feel a tangible expression of your love, especially right now. And so God, I pray that as we leave here today, that you would help us to be motivated by the example of Jesus, but even more submissive to the Lordship of Jesus as our master, as our king, as our boss, that we would go and live like him. We would go and do what he says. We'd find joy, happiness, and blessed by living and loving and serving like Jesus. And that you'd receive all the glory for anything that happens through us. We pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.